This morning, I want to talk about how do we go about understanding one specific aspect of interpretation? How do we apply these principles to specific portions of Scripture? Namely, how do we understand the parables? Parables, when they're properly understood, are um, very helpful teachings. But if we don't understand them correctly, if we don't apply the principles of interpretation to them correctly, we can come up with some really incorrect views of the parables, and they can become a source of tremendous confusion and even serious error. So what is a parable? Uh, Roy Zuck defines a parable as a form of figurative language involving comparisons rather than using a single word or phrase to make the comparison or analogy, as in simile, metaphor, a parable is an extended analogy in story form. A parable takes two objects or two situations and it compares them to one another so it can teach you a specific point. The word parable actually comes from two Greek words, para, which means beside or alongside, and balo, which means to throw. And so when you put that together, a parable means to throw alongside. That is, a parable is a story that is thrown alongside the truth to help you understand and believe the truth. And parables always teach a principle, a true principle or a fact. And teaching is certainly one of the primary reasons that Jesus started using parables. Stories are an excellent way to teach people. But Jesus didn't always teach in parables. He didn't always veil his teaching with a story. In fact, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't have any parables. And if you go through the first 12 chapters of Matthew, you get to Matthew 13 where you find your first parable. The first 12 chapters of Matthew have no parables. And then in Matthew 13, verse 3, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Again, Matthew 13, verse 34, all things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable. So why is there this sudden drastic change in his teaching? Why does he go from speaking openly without parables in the opening chapters of the book of Matthew, and then when he gets to chapter 13, he just dramatically changes his teaching style? This was the question the disciples asked in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 10, And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus then explains that he was using parables to let them hear without hearing, that they would see without actually seeing, that ultimately that they would not come to believe. This was an act of divine judgment. It was judgment on the nation of Israel. In chapter 12, the, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. They all watched him perform a miracle. They all knew it was a miracle. They all affirmed it was a genuine miracle. And yet the Pharisees and the leaders accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. This represented a hardened heart. They rejected their Messiah. And so starting in chapter 13, as a judgment on them, and going through the end of the book, Jesus speaks to the crowds in parables, and then he explains those parables in private to his disciples. And oftentimes, many of these parables were difficult for the disciples to even understand. Some of the disciples even came to him and said, we don't understand the parable. Can you explain it to us? Matthew 13, verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. This happened again two chapters later in Matthew 15, verse 15. Now Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. 
Even his disciples at times had trouble understanding the parables. And at times, you and I may read the parables and have trouble understanding them. But if we apply right hermeneutics, the right principles of hermeneutics, we can come to an understanding of the parables. And when we do that, the parables actually fulfill two purposes. One, they are a judgment on the unbeliever. And secondly, they are a means to teach the believer who has the aid of the Spirit in understanding them. And like I said, if you apply the right principles of hermeneutics, you can understand the parables. And I have six principles for interpreting parables. These are adapted from two different sources, Andrew Nicelli and Roy Zuck. You're not going to apply all of these principles to every parable. In some situations, you're only going to use one or two of the principles, and there is some overlap between them. But if you follow them, if you use these principles, you can understand the parables. So what's the first principle? First principle for interpreting parables. Don't assume that the parable describes a historical event. Parables are stories, and so they do contain certain elements that are historical. That is to say, they're true to life. They correspond with real-life events and real people and real things. But the events of the parable did not necessarily happen. Parables are comparisons to, to real life, and they have a goal of teaching a specific message or making a unique point. And that's what distinguishes the parable from an allegory. A parable relates to real life. An allegory does not. Roy Zuck. Historic events may serve as illustrations, but parables are special stories, not necessarily historic events, that are told to teach a particular truth. Since parables are true to life, they differ from allegories and fables. And that's a very important thing. While these are not historic events, these are also not allegories. Andrew Nicelli. What actually happened in history is that Jesus told these parables, but Jesus probably made up the stories. Does the fact that Jesus made up the story, does that mean we can't use the parable? Does that make it somehow deficient? Why not? Pretty obvious, right? It's Jesus speaking, and he's allowed to make up a story to teach a truth. So when you come to a parable, understand that it may not be describing historic events, but it is using real-life comparisons. So in Luke 16, when you have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, and he's talking, and he sees the rich man in Hades, and he's burning, you probably don't want to make the leap and say, well, Lazarus was in heaven, and he literally was talking to a guy in Hades, and you don't want to make that leap. The story was told for a purpose. It was told to teach something. It's not necessarily told to express a historical reality. Second principle. First one, don't assume they describe historical events. Second one, maintain a literal hermeneutic. Maintain your grammatical historical hermeneutic. Don't change the way you interpret the text simply because you get to a parable. The principles of interpretation remain the same whether you're in Genesis or any book between there and Revelation. You don't change just because you get to the parable. That is to say, don't allegorize the parable. Don't spiritualize it. The meaning of the parable will be found in the grammar, the lexical definitions, the syntax, and the context of the parable. It will not be superimposed by the interpreter. 
if you allegorize it, all you've done is just superimpose what you think onto the text. That is not the point of a parable. Augustine, I think we've looked at Augustine before, Augustine allegorized a parable. How many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? Anybody, anybody heard that one before? Okay. I'm asking that because that's a well-known one, and I'm assuming you know it because I'm not going to go back and read the whole thing. Okay. Augustine allegorized this parable, and these might be too small for you to see because there's too many of them, but I'm going to read them. So I'm going to show you a, a list, and you're going to see something that comes from the text, an equal sign, and then what Augustine said it meant. This all from that parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Augustine said that man was Adam. Jerusalem, Augustine said, was the heavenly city of peace from which Adam fell. Jericho is the moon and thereby signifies Adam's mortality. The robbers, that's the devil and his angels. When it says the robbers stripped the man, that's speaking of his immortality. When they beat him, that's talking about persuading him to sin. When the text says they left him half dead, Augustine said that saying, as a man he lives, but he died spiritually, therefore he's half dead. The priest and the Levite, that's the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament. The Samaritan is said to mean a guardian, therefore Christ himself is the Samaritan. When it says he bandaged his wounds, that's talking about the binding, the restraint of sin. When it talks about oil, that's comfort of good hope. Wine is an exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. The donkey is a beast. Ergo, the flesh of Christ's incarnation. The inn is the church. The next day refers to the day after the resurrection. Two silver coins is the promise of his life and the life to come. And the innkeeper is Paul. Where did he get that? Where did he get any of that? Andrew Nacelli commented on this. That's creative, but it's definitely not what Jesus meant. In fact, I, was, I had like three different books. All three of them referenced this. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, as a novel and interesting as all of this may be, one can be sure that it is not what Jesus intended. Roy Zuck, obviously this is a clear case of eisegesis reading into Scripture something that is not there. Exactly. If you allegorize the text, you make the parable meaningless. Because I can go back to that list, and I can change any one of those meanings, and he has no way to tell me I'm wrong. You do not abandon a grammatical historical hermeneutic when studying the parables. You read it according to its normal meaning. And that's where the truth will be revealed. That's where you will see what the text means and you will get to the principle. The parables are stories told in normal language and they make comparisons to real life events, activities, and behaviors. To allegorize it is to miss the point completely. And they use those comparisons to teach definite and real spiritual truth and spiritual realities. That truth is not revealed mystically. It's not revealed spiritually or magically. It's simply taught through the story. And if you allegorize the parable, you lose the meaning of the parable. Yes? When you, when you allegorize the text, I don't think you need to do that. 
because the meaning actually doesn't come from the text. He was asking if Augustine ever went back and explained how that fits in the passage. And when you allegorize it, you don't have to explain that. Your, your meaning that you derived didn't come from the text to begin with. He was a big proponent of the allegorical method, and he's one of the main reasons why we have so many people who embrace an allegorical method. Third principle. Seek a single main point. Now, that's not to say that parables won't have subpoints. That's not to say that parables won't have multiple points of application where you can apply it. We'll discuss application next week. Every passage has one meaning, but the implications of that passage are endless, and they can be applied in a, a multitude of ways. And that's true for parables. You can go to a, a parable, and its main point is one thing, but it can be applied in so many different ways. But when you're studying the parables, when you're interpreting parables, you want to find what is the one main idea of the parable. And you want to keep the main point the main thing. And don't lose sight of that main idea. It's going to have, every parable is going to have one overriding purpose and point that the author is trying to make. One big truth he wants to get across. And generally, you should be able to summarize what he's saying, his main point, in one sentence. If you can't say it in one sentence, you probably don't know what the parable's talking about yet. It should be a very simple, straightforward idea. And all of the details that you find in the parable, all of the elements of the parable, the people, the things that are discussed, the events that are discussed, all of that is intended to point back to that main idea and to help you get to the idea. So when you go to a parable, there's one question you really want to ask. What is the big idea of this parable? I'm not looking for 20 ideas. I'm looking for just one. He's thrown this story alongside a truth, and I need to know what that truth is. What is it he's trying to get me to understand? Sometimes Jesus will actually tell you the purpose of a parable. He just flat out tells you. This happened in Luke 15 with the parable of the lost sheep. We'll, we'll come back to Luke 15 a couple times today. Luke 15, verse 4. What a man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. This is the parable. The shepherd has 100 sheep. One of them runs off. So the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes out and he finds the one. And when he finds it, Luke 15, verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When the sheep is found, the shepherd picks the sheep up, puts the sheep on his shoulders, and carries the sheep home. And there are people who have tried to allegorize this idea that the sheep is carried on the shoulders. It's just a story. You know what it means when he says that he put the sheep on his shoulders and carried them home? He put the sheep on his shoulders and carried him home. That's what it means. That's all it means. Those elements are just there to help you get help you understand the story. And he returns home rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Luke 15, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I found something that's precious and valuable to me that was lost, and I have now found it and brought it home. And now the only logical thing for you to do is to rejoice with me. 
I am rejoicing because I found my sheep. And then in the next verse, Jesus helps you understand what this parable is talking about. You don't have to go looking for some mystical explanation for it. He tells you what it is. Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Notice the beginning of that. He starts off in the same way. And there he is. He's laying the story alongside the truth he's about to tell you. In the same way, there's the comparison. Like a shepherd who finds a lost sheep and rejoices. When a sinner repents and turns from their sin and comes to Christ, they were lost, they've come to Christ, they are now found, and all of heaven rejoices and celebrates that this person has come to repentance. Notice all of the elements here are real objects. He's referring to real sheep, to real shepherds. He's talking about what real shepherds actually do. He's talking about what real sheep actually do. Real sheep run off and shepherds go find them. None of these are spiritual things. These are all real. This is not an allegory. And if you turn the sheep and the shepherds into something other than sheep and shepherds, the parable makes no sense. And you cannot connect it to verse 7. Because now it makes no sense. It would be utterly confusing. It's because these are real objects. It's because we understand sheep and shepherds that this parable makes any sense to us. That we can understand it. And we can relate the individual elements of this parable to a spiritual reality. The shepherd in this scenario, in this parable, who is the shepherd in this scenario? Christ? Jesus? The one lost sheep. Who's the one lost sheep? The sinner, right? The repentant sinner who comes back. All right, here's a tricky question. Who are the 99 sheep? We're going to come, I don't know who said that. That was good. We're going to get back to that. The Pharisees are a big part of this. We'll, we'll come back to that. Yes. These are the 99 who saw no need for repentance. But this is a good time to point something out. Is that how we normally think about sheep in the Bible? Sheep refer to unrepentant unbelievers? Nope. Normally, when you hear sheep, you think believer. And this is something you, you need to think about when you're looking at parables. Parables function independently. They might be strung together, like we see in Luke 15, where you have multiple parables that are all kind of giving the same message. But they function independently. That is, don't bring metaphoric meanings into the parable from other passages or from other parables. This parable functions alone. You can't go grab Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and say, look, the Lord's talking about being a shepherd, ergo, the sheep here must be believers. That doesn't work. You can't go to John 10 and say, well, the sheep in John 10 are believers, ergo. No, this parable functions independently, and it defines its own terms. And when it uses sheep, the 99 here are unbelievers, and the only believer here is the one that was found. Everybody follow me? That's a great question, and that's, that's one of those good interpreters. I don't know if you heard her. She said, well, if these are unbelievers, the 99 are unbelievers, why does he bring that one sheep back to the flock? He doesn't actually. Yes, ma'am. 
Yeah. I would say that the, the context of this is going to matter. And we're going to talk about context in a few minutes that will answer that question. Um, the context here is of sinners coming to Christ. Right. The word righteous there is referring to people who believe themselves to be righteous and therefore have no need to repent. They don't see their own need to repent. Yes, sir. Yeah. We need to be careful not to argue with, with the parable. The parable is an isolated story that's intended to teach one point. And if we go and try to trace out all the, implica- all the possible nuances of shepherd and sheep, you're going to miss the point of the parable, right? He's not trying to explain the function of a, sh- of a sheep and a shepherd. He's not trying to tell you how to be a good shepherd. This is intending to teach one point. And the one point he's trying to teach is that when someone repents, there should be rejoicing. All of heaven rejoices. Why aren't the Pharisees rejoicing? We'll come back to that idea in just a minute. The, the context is very important here. And we're going to look at the context of all of Luke 15 here, because we're going to end on the prodigal son. In Luke 15, the individual characteristics of the parable relate to people you can identify. Other times, individual parts of the parable have no specific significance. Which means here you can say, well, this is Jesus, that's the unbelievers, that's a believer. Other times, you can't do that. Uh, The parable of the sower, Jesus identifies the various soils and he relates them to people, right? But in other parables, the individual characters, the individual elements of the parable are only included so you can understand the story, so the story can be told. This happens in Luke 18, the parable of the unrighteous judge. Luke 18, verse 1, now he was telling them a parable to show them, show that at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart. Verse 1 kind of acts as a summary statement and explains how the parable applies to the reader. And in this parable, a woman goes to an unrighteous judge and says, give me legal protection from my enemies, from my opponents. And the judge is like, "Mm, yeah, rather not. And he kind of dismisses her and says, nope, I'm not going to do it. And she keeps going back to him over and over and over and over. And finally, the unrighteous judge says, you know what? I'm going to give her what she's asking for just because she won't leave me alone. It's the old, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And then Jesus here explains what the parable means in verses 7 and 8. Now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cried him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that faith on the earth? Notice Jesus does not attach special significance to each part of the parable. The individual elements of the parable are just there to tell you the story. The widow, the city, the legal protection, her opponent, the unrighteous judge. These are all depicted as real-life figures, but there is no significant meaning attached to each of them. The focus of the parable is not on identifying the individual significance of each part of the parable, But the meaning of the parable, the meaning of the comparison as a whole, what's the whole picture trying to be given? We are to pray to God like the woman went to the judge. And if you try to attach individual significance to it, you end up saying that the unrighteous judge is God. Probably not a good idea. Don't want to do that. You are to pray like the woman went to the judge. To have enough faith to go and pray not get the answer you're looking for, and to continue going back over and over and over and over, believing eventually, if I keep praying, 
he will answer. He will give me what I need. Be careful not to try to find extra meanings in parables that are not clearly expressed in the text. Uh, Roy Zuck, to hunt for meaning in every detail in the parables is to turn them into allegories. An allegory is a story in which every element or almost every element has some meaning. Not every element in a parable always has some significant meaning. Andrew Nicelli, the details are there to help the story, to give the story a life. Parables are not allegories like John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. In Pilgrim's Progress, every person has a name, and that name tells you something. It represents something. Every city, every, everything has a meaning to it. That's not what the parables do. So when you're doing this, seek a single meaning. Seek the main point of the parable. Fourth principle, understand the context. Now, we, we've had several weeks on understanding context. And you want to do the same thing here when you're talking about parables. Both the historical and literary context matter. Historical context here refers to understanding the parables in the historical settings in which the parable is given. What was going on at the time when Jesus told the parable? He told that parable for a specific reason. And the circumstances that parable shows up in will explain that reason. The parable that we just looked at in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, we're going to talk about that here in a minute, but I want to give you the historic context of that in Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal son begins Luke 15, verse 11. The historical context of that, that parable is Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. If all you do is open up your Bible to the prodigal son and start reading, you're going to come to a different interpretation of that passage. Luke 15, verse 1. And by the way, this is still this is also the context for the parable we just discussed with the lost sheep. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to to coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus has sinners coming to him. They're coming to hear the gospel. They're coming to hear from the one person who can actually do something about their sin. And you would think that the religious leaders would be the first people in the world to be happy about it. It would be like someone coming to this church repentant and sorrowful and crying out to Christ, and your pastor's like, oh, really, again? You'd be like, I'm going to go find a new church. You shouldn't be upset by this. It seems like these people are coming to be converted. And instead of celebrating, the Pharisees are becoming upset and angry. And they're getting mad because other people are finding salvation. And their hard-heartedness provokes a righteous anger in Jesus. And the parables that follow, including the parable of the lost sheep, is a response to this anger. One writer said that the parables of Jesus were weapons of warfare that Jesus used to go after his adversaries. He would use the parables to go after the Pharisees without saying, I'm going after the Pharisees. But oftentimes you'll find out that the Pharisees get very upset when he does it because they know who he's talking to. And that's kind of the case here. This parable comes right after Luke mentions the anger of the Pharisees. And in fact, the parable we just looked at of the lost sheep, 
Luke 15, verse 3, So he told them this parable, saying, The parable of the lost sheep comes right on the heels of him pointing out that the Pharisees are mad that people are getting saved. And this verse begins with a logical conjunction that connects it back to what the Pharisees were doing. And the parable of the lost sheep is Jesus' response to the Pharisees and their anger. Let me remind you a couple of the elements here that I didn't really point out in this. The first is a statement that's going to be repeated multiple times. Let's go back to Luke 15, verse 6. This is the parable of the lost sheep. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I want you to note, I have found which was lost. Those two ideas are going to be repeated all the way through Luke 15. And whenever you see things repeated, you want to pay attention because the, the author is trying to get your attention. He's trying to get you to notice what he's repeating. Also notice that when he finds what was lost, his response to it is to rejoice. The very thing the Pharisees are not doing. And that pattern will continue in the parables that follow. Someone or something is lost, then it is found, and everyone rejoices. And that pattern holds true here for this parable. We looked at verse 7 a minute ago. The sinner is lost, he's living in sin, then he is found, that is, he repents, and everyone in heaven rejoices. Jesus finishes the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7. Verse 8, he begins another parable, the parable of the lost coin. And once again, the pattern continues. The coin is lost, then it's found, and then there's rejoicing. Luke 15, verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten drachmas and loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Notice verse 8 also begins with a logical conjunction. Or, I've given you one example, here's another one. Or what woman? The woman here is not identified. This isn't a specific woman. It can literally be any woman. This is axiomatic. It's just common sense. If you lose something that's valuable, you go back and you look for it. Here, she loses a drachma. Now, if you look that up, a drachma can vary in its value depending on the location and the time, kind of like the U.S. dollar varies in its value depending on time and location. However, this wasn't a small amount of money. This was a significant amount of money. In most cases, it would buy a whole sheep or it would pay one-fifth the price of an ox. And even today, buying one-fifth of the price of an ox, pretty good amount of money. When she lost it, you can imagine she was rather eager to find her money. And just like in the previous parable, she begins a search and she goes looking for the drachma. And she eventually finds it. Luke 15, verse 9. And when she found it, she calls together friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the drachma which I had lost. She finds what is lost, and she then rejoices with her friends and her neighbors. I have found the coin which I had lost. Notice she didn't rejoice over the other nine which she already had. Just like the shepherd did not rejoice over the 99 sheep. She rejoices over the one that was lost but is now found. Not only her, but her friends and her neighbors also rejoice with her. 
These parables present the picture that the natural and logical response to finding something of value that was lost is to rejoice. Jesus then explains the main point of this parable, Luke 15, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just like the woman rejoiced over finding the lost drachma, everyone should rejoice over a sinner repenting. It's just the natural, logical thing for you to do. And there is something very wrong with the Pharisees when they don't rejoice. Everyone in heaven rejoices. Everyone on earth should rejoice. And it was in that context that we now get to the parable of the prodigal son. What's the context? Pharisees and scribes do not follow the logical and expected response of rejoicing when, they're, when a sinner repents. They get angry. Two parables are given before the parable of the prodigal son, both of which contain the same elements. Someone or something is lost of value, it's found, and everyone rejoices. And the parable of the prodigal son begins in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The verse again begins with a logical conjunction back to what happened before. He's linking these three parables together. And I'm not going to go through this entire parable. But we are discussing historical context here. And that includes not only what is occurring when the parables are given, which we've just looked at, it also includes the historical elements within the parable. Now, the parable of the prodigal son, he has two sons. One runs off into sin, ends up living in a pig pen, comes back, repents, and his father celebrates his return. Right? Because these are stories, the various aspects of the story are real historical items, and they're actually helpful in understanding the story. For example, the son's request in verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, the father, divided his wealth between them. How do you think that request was understood by the father? Dead? Yeah. Yeah. This is like wishing, Dad, I wish you would just die so I can get some money. That would not have gone over real well. It's not exactly a compliment to his father, and it really shows his cruelty to his father. And this is a grievous offense to his dad. Verse 16, he's living in the pig pen, he's eating pig slop. That also would have been extremely offensive to a Jew. Certainly would have made him unclean. Both those are historical elements that help you understand what's going on in the passage. Another one is found in verse 20. So he rose up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And here, what's historically relevant is the fact that he ran to his son. In that day, dignified Middle Eastern men did not run. Moses Silva, when we read about the father running to meet his younger son, we view that merely as an expression of joy. In the Middle East, however, particularly in rural areas, a mature man is expected always to walk slowly with dignity. It is likely that the father in the parable runs to protect the son from children in the town who might decide to meet him with stones. In doing so, however, the father humbles himself and becomes a powerful picture of the God of grace. A God who would humble himself for the benefit of another. Without the historical context, you don't get to see the beauty of what happened. 
The historical context brings vividness and clarity to the picture. After the son returns, the father celebrates by killing the fatted calf. And this is where the older son says, you know what, my brother's returning. I'm going to go celebrate with him. No, the older son becomes angry and goes to his father and says, look, you, you're killing the fatted calf for him. You haven't even killed a goat for me so I can have a party with my buddies. And here's this guy who squandered your wealth and you kill a fatted calf for him? I want you to see how the father, how this parable closes with the father's response. Luke 15, verse 31, And he said to him, Child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive, and was lost and has been found. Father turns to the son and says, Your brother was lost and now has been found. We had to celebrate. It was a requirement. It's just what you're supposed to do. To not celebrate is unthinkable. It's a response the older son should have given. He should have been celebrating the return of his brother. Now, this parable is often used evangelistically. That the father will run to you and be gracious to you if you would repent and turn from your sin. And I do think that's a good secondary purpose of this parable. But given the historical context, do you think that's the purpose he's trying to get to, is the evangelistic purpose? What is the primary point of this parable? It is a rebuke to the Pharisees. The elder son who was upset and angry over the return of his brother represents the Pharisees in verses 1 and 2 angry and upset over sinners and tax collectors coming to Jesus. The older brother should have been rejoicing, just like the Pharisees should have been rejoicing. Instead, just like the Pharisees, he had a hard heart and he became angry and upset. Angels in heaven rejoice when sinners repent. The shepherd rejoiced when he found his sheep. The woman rejoiced when she found her coin. The father rejoiced when his son returned. Why is the older brother upset? Why are the Pharisees upset? Completely wrong response. Moses Silva, the elder son represents the grumbling Pharisees who seem unable to share in the joy of God and the angels in heaven. Daryl Bach, another good commentator, the elder brother represents the self-righteous leadership, the Pharisees and scribes of verse 1, or anyone else who claims to serve God and yet is harsh toward the possibility of forgiveness for sinners. You see how the historical context is vital to you understanding the main point of this parable? You need to understand the historical context. You also need to understand the literary context. And that is to say, parables aren't always put in historical, chronological order. The authors move them around to make the point that they want to make. And you need to look at where the inspired author decided to put the parable because that will help you understand the point. Moses Silva, they present historic, speaking of parables, they present historical events from a particular angle. And in doing so, they interpret the events for us. When we study the parables, therefore, we should be interested not only in their function during the ministry of Jesus, but also in the way they are used by gospel writers. Pay attention to the literary context. Where does this show up in the book? 
The parables leading up to the prodigal son and the placement of the prodigal in its location are all done intentionally by the author so that you can come to that understanding. Just like when you study any other passage, look at the paragraphs and the context that comes before and after your parable. Fifth principle. Determine the main problem or question the parable resolves. Determine the main problem or question the parable resolves. This is a vital understanding of the main point of the parable. Again, the parable is addressing one topic. And it provides an answer to one problem or one situation or one question. And sometimes the parable is given in order just to answer a question that someone comes to Jesus and asks. This happened in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable that's often used to describe how you're supposed to be a good neighbor. If you want to be a good neighbor, be like the Samaritan. But the parable is placed after Jesus is asked a very specific question. Anybody know what question he was asked? Luke 10, verse 25, And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a lawyer. And he's basically asking, Jesus, what do I have to do to earn my way into heaven? How can I get to heaven on my own? And Jesus' response is, well, keep the law. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And an honest person would hear that and say, I guess I can't earn my way to heaven. The lawyer, though, he did the lawyer thing. He tried to debate Jesus. Bad idea. Luke 10, verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, and that's how I get to heaven, now Jesus define for me who my neighbor is, and I'll go love that person. You see how he's trying to circumvent the law? He's asking that because he understands he doesn't love others like himself. He can't live up to the law. If he understood salvation, he would have admitted his guilt and begged for forgiveness because he realized he can do neither. He cannot love God as he should, and he certainly does not love others as he should. And his question, who is my neighbor, is an attempt to evade the inevitable conclusion that he is, on his own, lost. He's doomed. And so Jesus now gives him a parable of the Good Samaritan to demonstrate to the lawyer that he can't do it. He can't love his neighbor like he should. And this parable pictures a Samaritan, someone the Jews hated, by the way, showing godly love to another in need. And he didn't just show love to him in the sense of, oh, let me help you up after you've been beaten and robbed. He took him to an inn. He bandaged his wounds. He provided money for him. He paid the innkeeper. And then he told the innkeeper, you let him stay here as long as he needs. Don't charge him a dime. Take care of all of his expenses, and I will pay you back in full when I return. That's like, here's a blank check. Just fill it in. I'm going to sign it for you. Just fill it in with the cost, and I'll cover it. He loved that man. And after explaining the parable, Jesus ends the parable by turning to the question back. That question, who is my neighbor? And he turns it back on the lawyer. Luke 10, verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go show that kind of love to every person in every situation all the time, 
and do it perfectly. Then you can have eternal life. That's an impossible task. John MacArthur, the idea is that only by continuously perfectly loving God and every neighbor on every occasion, even the worst enemy, could the scribe satisfy the first and second commandments and obtain eternal life. Obviously, Christ's point is that neither the scribe nor anyone else is capable of such love. The only proper response was for him to acknowledge his inability to save himself and plead with God for mercy and forgiveness. This parable was intended to answer a question. That's the problem it's here to resolve. And it's not an issue of how do you treat your neighbor, it's an issue of how do you get to heaven. The answer to his original question, Luke 10.25, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer to the question is, you can do nothing. It's not open to you in that way. Same thing happens in Matthew 18. Jesus is asked, Lord, how often should I forgive? And he ends up giving the parable of the unforgiving slave. Sometimes parables, I'm skipping ahead here for time, sometimes parables are used to explain a principle. Mark 13, verse 33, Jesus says, See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. The appointed time refers to his second coming. And they are always to be ready for his second coming. And immediately after the statement, he then gives the parable of the doorkeeper. Where the master leaves and tells the doorkeeper, stay awake, keep on the alert until I return. The parable is intended to illustrate this principle. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. Okay, determine the main problem or question the parable resolves. Last one. This will be quick. Apply the main point to your own context. We'll talk about application next week, so this isn't going to be a long discussion. Application always comes after you have determined what it means. Sometimes we open up the Bible and we try to get to application right off the bat, and we don't want to do the hard work of studying the text. But if you do that, you end up applying the wrong principle to your life, and you end up disobeying God because you're following something other than the Bible. Once you understand what the main point is, you take that main point of the parable to and apply it to your own life. So take the parable of the unforgiving servant, the unforgiving slave. He's forgiven this massive debt, and then he goes and he chokes out somebody else because they won't pay him back and throws the guy in prison. The point of the parable is what? You are to forgive the way you have been forgiven. You are to forgive graciously, unceasingly, abundantly, and always forgive. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, is that something you can apply to your life? Nice and simple, right? It's not an easy thing to apply, but you can apply that. The parable of the prodigal son, can you apply that principle to your life? Yeah. I should be rejoicing when others come to salvation. If I'm not, there's something wrong with my heart. All right, any questions? Yeah, that's a great point. She said that Jesus is making you see who you really are. And these parables are a great way to do that because they're so real to life. They, they talk about real-life situations that everybody understands. Excellent example, yeah, the parable in, that Nathan tells David after David's sin, and he confronts David and said, you are the man. He tells him a parable to help him illustrate it, and David convicts himself and says, that man should die, and 
Nathan's like, mm, that's you. And so, yeah, all the parables do call for a response. And so you have to get to the application part of this. You have to get to the point where you say, I can't just be a hearer of the word. I need to be a doer. And so what is this parable calling me to do or to be? Um, we're a little over, so let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much uh, for our time this morning. We thank you that uh, we get to sit here and study the word. And uh, we do ask that you would help us as we think about these parables, as we think about uh, Jesus' teaching in such a way that uh, he condescends to our level. He makes it to where we can understand it. That's not to say we don't have to work hard for the understanding, but it is understandable. It is clear. And when we come to an understanding of these parables, it is so convicting and so helpful. And we ask that you would help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.